Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest, windiest, and emptiest continent on Earth. Every year, more than 400 scientists venture there to study everything from astronomy to microbiology. But they can't do it alone. It takes a small army of support staff to keep them all safe and fully operational. The Antarctic Sun podcast is a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for the National Science Foundation to maintain the research stations and vessels that support ongoing science in the harshest continent at the bottom of the planet. This episode, Marine Operations. The U.S. Antarctic Program operates two research vessels that sail around the continent and stop over at Palmer Station, the National Science Foundation's research station at the tip of the peninsula. Yeah, so it's, it's a two-part process, really, for, the, for Marine. This is Sean Burkaw. He was the Marine Project's coordinator on the research vessel Lawrence M. Gould while I was aboard. We, uh, with Palmer Station, the only support for Palmer Station is by ship. So um, for Palmer Station, Marine does all the logistics of bringing in the cargo and also the people. So as people come and go from the station, both scientists and the technicians who run the station were the ones who transport them. But then additionally, um, any science done out at sea is done off of the ships. The science cruises take researchers all around the continent to study the oceans and the organisms that call the Southern Ocean home. And to bring people and supplies to Palmer Station from the port at Punta Arenas, Chile, the vessels have to cross the oftentimes tempestuous Drake Passage, which separates the southern tip of South America from the Antarctic Peninsula. It's notorious for its unpredictable weather and rough seas. And at times, it can be the roughest stretch of ocean in the world. Yeah, uh, we've had crossings where it was a complete mill pond the whole way across. This is Dave Moore, a marine technician on board the Lawrence M. Gould. We've also had crossings where, you know, it was blowing in the 40s, 40 knot range with 30 foot seas. Um, it's it's kind of hit or miss every time. Um, sometimes the ship will actually have to wait on one side or the other of, of the Drake to wait for a storm system to pass because we just know that it's going to be too rough to cross. Both Dave and Sean have made the crossing many times. Each time is a little bit different, depending on the weather, the ocean conditions, the operations they're running, and which ship they're on. There's two vessels, the, the Lawrence M. Gould and then Nathana B. Palmer. And the Palmer, she goes, she's a little more capable and goes further afield. So she's gone down over towards McMurdo Station and all. Whereas the Gould is a little bit smaller, but she'll do support out of Palmer Station oftentimes. Sean has worked on both ships, and while the two vessels often share crew members and scientific equipment, they're very different vessels. Um, the Gold is just, it's about 100 feet shorter, um, and it's, it's just a little bit smaller. Her total capacity is around uh, 37 people, whereas the, the Palmer could carry around 70 people. And then as far as science equipment, scientifically they're not overly different, but the, the Palmer, again, being a larger ship, could carry well, more scientists and also more sci larger scientific equipment. There are essentially three main divisions of people working on board the vessels, and it's Sean's job to coordinate between everybody so the scientists can accomplish their goals. So basically, um, the ship has a crew that, that run the ship. So they have a captain and mates who, who run the deck, and then they have a cook who runs that, and then the deckhands who basically run the cranes, but also clean the cabins and do all the myriad of little jobs as well. And then you have the scientists who come aboard who want, they're like, okay, I want to do this project or whatever. And then what I do is I work with the technicians. So we have MTs, which are the marine techs, who, who actually will hook up the equipment and, and, and run their winches. And then we have um, the lab tech who helps the scientists with the chemicals and all. And then the electronics tech 
and they work with uh, computers to make sure all the equipment's talking to each other. And so my job is to um, work with the ship's captains so they understand what, what are we trying to achieve with this particular project. And it's up to the marine technicians to help the scientists complete their project, or even collect data for them if they set up a system to remotely capture data. Yeah, we're the support mechanism that allows them to safely and effectively collect all of their samples. Uh, if it's gear that they're borrowing from somebody else, or if it's a new piece of gear, or anything along those lines. Um, so we're the boots on the ground to make it, make all the science happen. It's, it's fairly expensive to fly people down to be on a ship, and, and for this, if you will, it's, um, simple science, it's not really simple science, but it's, it's been regimented into a system that the techs of org could easily handle. So in a way, um, we could capture the data that the scientists need. And so um, economically, they could carry on a sophisticated science project without spending their, their money, their grant money, going back and forth down here to the ship. In addition, the marine laboratory technician, Amy Belcher, makes sure that the small onboard labs the researchers use are fully stocked and running smoothly. I mean, I do help out on the back deck a lot with those guys, so uh, kind of I think a general theme of everybody that works on the boats is like, we all, like, you can help with the electronics, you can help with the labs, you can help with the back deck, we all kind of do it all, but then uh, I mainly oversee, like my, my first priority is like being there for the scientists in the labs and making sure that they have their equipment and their chemicals and uh, dealing with their samples at the end of the cruise. Uh, but that often involves, you know, being out on deck helping with, you know, coring or water sampling, uh, kind of all stages of the process. There is a wide range of different research done on board the vessels, and accordingly, a wide range of science equipment that the marine techs are in charge of operating safely. Uh, we get to do a lot of different things in the program, which makes it really fun for us. Uh, and every time we come back is something different. So we could be doing a science cruise that involves coring on one trip, and then the next time we'll be doing water sampling or moving cargo to Palmer Station. Uh, it's always something different different sciences anywhere from like you said from geology to water science and physical oceanography can vary and it allows us to really kind of have a group of technicians that have a wide breadth of skills um, so that they can overcome all the challenges and new science that gets uh, proposed. That's Matt Lewis, another marine tech for the program, and I asked them to give me an idea about the range of tasks for the different science and logistics operations that they help out with. So probably one of the most common things that we do is uh, what's called a CTD, stands for Conductivity, Temperature, and Depth. Um, it's this big uh, round rosette of sampling bottles that we deploy from the ship. It goes down typically to within a few meters of the bottom, and it does a water profile. So it brings, tells, uh, sends back water parameters that are logged, and the scientists can use it to map out the water column. And then they can also collect discrete water samples from various depth depths using the bottles that are on this rosette. Um, when we're doing kind of water sampling cruises, like heavy CTD kind of things, and uh, have waters, often uh, we have salinometers on board, the autocell and the portocell, so they'll be running salts uh, to look at that percentage. Um, we also have some oxygen titrators so they can measure oxygen. Um, we have pH probes that they can use. Um, so, you know, various different things, like if you're looking at chemistry, um, sometimes scientists ship down nutrient analyzers and gas chromatographs. Uh, the possibilities are kind of endless. But we also will have uh, different types of trawls, nets that we'll tow along the bottom. We have um, multiple different types of bottom cores, which is basically a tube with a weight at the top that gets pushed into the sediment. 
and it brings back that little snapshot of the ocean floor. Uh, we support a lot of field camp work um, with the small boats, so we'll operate all the small boats um, that are in the program and make sure that scientists are getting to and from maybe a, land, a, a small island offshore um, to do their work. We have a lot of different um, physical oceanographic devices like autonomous gliders and buoys and drifters and moorings um, that along with this coupled with the CTD data, that conductivity, that one-time snapshot, we can get some longer-term data collected as well um, using these pieces of equipment that we can leave out for months on a time. To get a first-hand look at how marine techs help scientists thousands of miles away carry out their research, I followed Chuck Holloway as he was deploying these small, expendable bathyothermographs, or XBTs. And scientists use them to better understand the changes in temperature down through the water column, which gives them an idea about ocean currents. All right, well, these, we're deploying these as we go across the Drake, and they measure two things. They measure a depth and they measure a temperature. So you get a, you get a profile of temperature versus depth as these go down. Um, they're expendable because they're just, uh, they're dropped over the side with a copper, copper wire attached to them, and they uh, record and send that data back. And then uh, once the deployment's done, the wire breaks and we leave the uh, XBT behind. These things look like a little torpedo in a tube, and they're just launched right off the side. It's just a matter of starting the software and, uh, um, and then launching them. We, we, we launch these, uh, at, right now it's been about every half hour um, interval as we, as we head across. So I'll take this out and launch it now. Chuck walks the small handheld launcher over to the side of the ship. So as I said, we just, uh, we just take it to the rail and we just drop it right over the side and it just falls out and off it goes. But there is a small copper wire that's being spooled out right now. Very, very thin copper wire. And uh, we just let that spool out until, uh, until all the data is collected. And uh, then we can just actually just pick up the copper wire and break it. And uh, that's the end of the cast. As the XBT sinks deeper under the waves, it's sending back detailed temperature data, which shows up on the computer screen as a line on a graph. So here you can see that green trace, which is the uh, the real-time trace for this uh, this cast. And um, oh, so it really only collects data for a minute or two. Right, right, yeah, it's pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah, because that thing's falling pretty fast. And you can tell here there's really, it's really a fairly, fairly well-mixed layer in here. We're not seeing any any distinct water masses where you'd see a, 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 a distinct change in the, uh, in, the, in the temperature structure. We started these just as we, uh, just as we sort of uh, you know, left the continental shelf off of uh, South America. This particular crossing was comparatively mild, all things considered. But when the seas do get rough, it can take its toll on the passengers and the crew aboard. And special precautions, big and small, need to be taken. It can be kind of like being in a washing machine that you cannot get out of, and sometimes you just want you just want the boat to stop moving for you know five minutes. But uh, yeah, you kind of get used to that, thrown around, uh, making sure everything's secured at all times. Uh, everybody makes sure that they have non-skid under their plates in the galley, and you never leave a cup sitting just on a counter. Um, same with water bottles; they'll roll down the hallway. Um, when it's very very rough, then. There's not a lot of work that can be done, really, um, especially as far as like science ops. Uh, we kind of got to wait for the weather to calm down a little bit. It's not not safe for the equipment, but most of all, it's not safe for us to be out on deck and working with things in the water. 
Um, the ocean is very unforgiving and we'd really rather stay on its good side. So uh, most of the time we'll stay inside, ride it out um, for the marine technicians because we're responsible for uh, stowing and securing all the gear that's on the ship. We're doing constant rounds, especially after we take a good roll from a wave to make sure that everything has stayed where we put it and that nothing's rolling around where it shouldn't be. You know, I think everybody after their first strike passage learns that, you know, if you unsecure something, you need to re-secure it and that nothing's really safe to be unsecured and walk away from it for 10 minutes because things can change drastically. You know, one bad roll and, you know, your laptop could be on the floor or your water can spill everywhere or, you know, God forbid, a, a major piece of equipment could go flying. So, yeah, it's an experience. <laughs> There's a lot of heavy equipment on board these ships, and making sure that everything is safely secured and the passengers know what to do in the event of an emergency is always a top priority. No, safety is a really, really important part of what we do down here, and it's and yet it's still inherently an extremely dangerous neighborhood. You know, because you have high winds, you know, big seas, and then the deck get icy really easily, um, so a lot could happen that way. When conditions get really bad, safety overrides all other concerns, and carefully planned timetables can go out the proverbial porthole. About two months ago, they actually had to wait for six days down by Palmer Station. They went partway. Um, it's about a, normally a four-day transit from Palmer Station up to, to Punta Arenas. And they got one day out, and then there was all these big storm systems going through the Drake Passage. And they kept watching them, the captain and, the, and the, the, my, my counterpart, the NPC, and they realized that there wasn't time to make it, one storm would go by and we get calm, but only for 12 to 18 hours, and that wasn't enough time to make it across. So they literally were stuck behind this little island for six days waiting for a weather window to, to make it across. But that's fairly unusual. Most times with the ship, um, you know, we make it across within a 12 hour, within 12 hours of when we expect. It's a lot of hard work and very tight quarters, but for the members of the crew that come back again and again, it's kind of worth it. Uh, you eat every meal together, you know, you, you live and work together, so there's really never a, a moment, I mean, we work kind of 12-hour shifts, but even when you're off, like, you're still sort of on call for any sort of thing that might come up, you know, if there's an emergency in the lab or they just need more people on back deck, you know, they can come get you at any time. So I think, uh, I mean, I think it's a unique experience. I really enjoy it because I like being part of that, like, small, tight-knit community, and um, I've been here about seven years, and you know most of my coworkers are just really good friends at this point, or really actually family. So because we've just spent so many months together at this point that you know you kind of love each other. Um, every time we're on board, it's a new science group, it's a new challenge. Something is different every time. There's a new, um, there's new studies being performed, um, and a new challenge to be overcome. And the environment is just absolutely spectacular to be in, um, both physically, the seeing of Antarctica and the um, environment of living on the ship and working around um, some of the smartest people in the world. I absolutely love Antarctica and I think it just takes your breath away and it's an amazing, unique place to work. Um, but I think, you know, I keep coming back because I love the job and I love the people and, you know, the wildlife's amazing, but, you know, the friendships that you kind of form down here, it, you know, it's hard to think about doing something else. So. That's all for this edition of the Antarctic Sun podcast, and stay tuned for more. I'll be bringing you more behind-the-scenes looks at how the National Science Foundation gets science done at the bottom of the world. And check out our website at antarcticsun.usap.gov for more news and science from the frozen continent.